You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, we'll discuss the state of the crypto market. Jack Manners is with us, the CEO and founder of Bitcoin payment app Strike. And we'll look at how artificial intelligence is changing the labor force, especially for the heavy hit tech industry, which has already lost 200,000 employees this year due to layoffs. And let's talk more about AI. We'll break down the Bloomberg big take on how Silicon Valley is playing catch up with Microsoft when it comes to the dominance in artificial intelligence. That's as the tech giant nears a new record high, a stock I know you're going to be diving into, Ed. But first, let's go a little bit broader to two crypto lenders, Ed. Lynx in South Korea, they've halted with in quick succession, sparking, of course, a bit of deja vu here. The turmoil the market faced, Celsius, for example, back in 2022. However, investors seem to be shrugging off the risk of contagion. Joining us for insight is someone who knows Bitcoin really well, digital asset market maker, of course, Jack Manners, Strike founder and CEO. Strike, a mobile payments app that uses Bitcoin network to facilitate fast, cheap global transactions and actually allows users to send, receive money, currency, including Bitcoin, without intermediary without fees. I'm interested in particular your own move to self-custody, Jack, of late. Is this yes about reducing counterparty risk? I understand there's a lot of benefits to being your own custody, some of the products that you can therefore offer your customers, but how much does that reflect some of the worry in the ecosystem at large? Um, first of all, hello. Nice Hi. to see you both. I hope you miss me. Nice to see um, you. Yeah, the, so the vision for the company, we believe strictly in Bitcoin. Uh, we think, and I think personally, that Bitcoin is the innovation of digital currency, of cryptocurrency, of blockchain. There's Bitcoin and there's everything else. And so us as a company, we're laser focused on being a global Bitcoin provider and providing financially impressive tools on top of the tech. And so we made a move to take all of our 
custody, a lot of our KYC process in-house. We do not want to work with other parties because we want to do it the best in the world. So we've been, it's a really long process to get all of the licenses and comply with regulation to be a money service business in the United States. And uh, we're really proud to take all that in-house so that we can be the best in the world at Bitcoin, not crypto. Uh, and that's why, because uh, we think we could do it better than everybody else. So we're going to do it ourselves. Uh, Jack, good morning to you from San Francisco. Uh, Bitcoin and not crypto. It's really interesting. Our crypto team here at Bloomberg were writing overnight that crypto share, a Bitcoin, sorry, share of the total crypto market is at a 20-month high. And there's a lot of caution about the broader market away from Bitcoin. What does that tell you? Um, it tells me that markets are efficient, that the world is figuring out where true innovation or true value is. I mean, if I'm being honest with you guys, uh, crypto is worth zero. It's just not realized as that yet, which takes time. This is a new industry. It's a new technology. But I think everyone's waking up to the fact that the only thing that delivered a technical innovation and made conscious ground forward for humanity as far as money as a technology is Bitcoin. And regulators are realizing that, speculators are realizing that, hedge funds are realizing that, businesses are realizing that. And so, I don't know, that's what that means. The number still seems a bit off because it's not 100% Bitcoin, but uh, I think the world could take its time. It's okay. I don't know, Jack. Many would say smart contracts was a significant development. Many people would like ETH, even if perhaps some of the smaller altcoins at the moment are under some concerns around overall regulatory impact. I'm interested, though, Jack, like many would say, look, where is the real use case at the moment for many of these altcoins and, and other areas of crypto? So your use case of Bitcoin largely is it remittance and how much are we seeing that being adopted by the emerging markets where many do see rampant inflation that's really what the calling of Bitcoin has been for many yeah I mean we let customers buy and sell Bitcoin and we use the technology to improve payments I mean you're talking about there's a digital public infrastructure for payments I'm just gonna moment of silence for that that's insane WIFT is not public infrastructure for the world. Visa is not public infrastructure for the world. It's like a park that we all share, a public utility that we get to all utilize for the benefits of our own lives. It's owned by no one, accessible by everyone. We're taking new digital public infrastructure, which, by the way, guys, think of it like the Internet. The Internet is global, open, public infrastructure for the world to communicate. Really, really powerful thing, really, really enhanced humanity, really changed lives, and really empowered fundamental human rights and human freedoms, freedom of speech. Bitcoin is very similar for money and for property rights. And so we use digital public infrastructure to make financial transactions faster, cheaper, more global, more inclusive. It's really cool stuff. And I don't think it's that complicated. Your smart contract comment I want to get to um, because I think it's super simple. It's super known. It's super understood. It's very sound. Uh, and yeah, that's exactly what we do. Uh, Jack, we appreciate it. We don't have time for moments of silence on this program. It's a limited show of commercial breaks. Let's talk about real-world use cases and also the kind of competitive landscape with Strike. I, I noticed that Coinbase announced a partnership with Block's BitKey. Uh, it, it, it itself is about the use of self-custody wallets. Do you recognize that as competition? What do you make of that partnership in the context of the work you're doing? No, 
I think the way we think about the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of this industry is it's not a winner take all or winner take most. In fact, it's implied the opposite is that if a new network of constituents that are delivering value to the world through monetary services are to be developed, it implies that a network has more than one, right? Or else it wouldn't be a network. And so I love to see, we love to see other businesses and companies join us on the Bitcoin and the Lightning Network. It makes our services more valuable. It enhances the network effects and the economies of scale that come with this new open digital infrastructure. So I'm a huge fan of Jack Dorsey and Block and all they're doing. And uh, that's great. More people are going to be able to buy Bitcoin on Coinbase, self-custody it, and uh, hopefully Coinbase can then move on to the Lightning Network. That'd be awesome. He's a fellow Bitcoin maximalist. I'm, I'm interested, Jack, in ultimately the, the overall regulatory overhang at the moment, particularly in the US. The issues that, yes, you've moved to self-custody, but many would say it happened in tandem when there was worries, rumors about the bankruptcy of, of your former custodian. These sorts of issues, weaknesses that seem to be in the rest of crypto, does that ultimately damage its adoption longer term, do you think? Is it frustrating or is it an opportunity? Well, let me ask you a question back. Damage which adoption, crypto adoption or Bitcoin adoption? Two different things. Bitcoin, too, because I think they all get caught up in the same narrative. Bitcoin is still ultimately totally. deemed cryptocurrency. Yeah, totally. No, I think it's this is a great cleansing. It's really phenomenal. I mean, listen, guys, the SEC, their job is to theoretically, and, and I'm, I'm just explaining what's going on, um, the SEC's job is to protect the ethics and morality in the United States financial markets. And the notion that they would have an issue with everything but Bitcoin says a lot. It doesn't seem like a very ethical, moral like it, it, it's it's a problem and so how do we fix that we go through what we're going through now people that shouldn't be in business go bankrupt things that sh are illegal and immoral and unethical should be required to disclose and give proper transparency to the american public and so i think all of this is good for bitcoin i think where this leaves us is value is going to accrue where it's real and where i think it's real and where i think it's moral where i think it's ethical where i think it's innovative where i think it's better faster cheaper stronger is bitcoin and so the path on how we get there is always going to be complicated, uh, and that's the part of free markets, which America tr loves deeply, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think we're just going through free market discovery of what's truly innovative in a new technology sector. We've been through it before in the internet, and we're seeing similar patterns now. Um, and I think that that's becoming abundantly clear that it's Bitcoin. So on a day-to-day -day basis, if you're tracking a chart, maybe it looks choppy. But over a long-term trajectory, I mean, Bitcoin is being widely considered uh, the best version of money humanity's ever developed. Widely might be taken issue with, but certainly by some. Jack Manners, we thank you so much for bringing us your perspective. Really great to have you, the Strike founder there. Coming up, well, we're going to be discussing how Freshworks is bringing the power of AI to its customers, how India, in fact, is joining the AI race. We'll talk about all of that with the CEO of Freshworks next. Plus, let's just take a quick look in on Adobe, the Photoshop maker. Out with earnings tonight, the company's artificial intelligence plan, and its deal with Figma. That's going to be front and center in its second quarter revenue. Expected, look, we're looking at the direction of travel for how revenue continues to be perhaps generated by generative AI. We're up 1.8%. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. 
Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The most likely outcome for Europe trying to regulate it is they basically prevent the Industrial Revolution from happening in Europe. And it it remains a place where it's very nice to take my daughters on vacation, but maybe it's not part of the future of the world innovation-wise, if they're not very careful. This is the one possible upside of Brexit you could talk about, is that maybe Europe commits suicide with its regulation and stops any development there. And maybe the, the, you know, UK gets it right and doesn't do so. Sunshine over there in Europe. Eight Partners founding partner and Palantir co-founder Joe Lonsdale speaking on the sidelines of the Founders Forum in London, essentially saying Europe's making a mistake in wanting to regulate AI. Let's stick with all of this because beyond regulation, another key concern has got to be, well, how it affects you and I, our jobs, the displacement, a worry that all the greater tech industry has already seen, what, 200,000 employees laid off this year, and could that even be affected further by the fact that the machines can be doing it? Let's bring in Bloomberg's Ellen Hewitt for more on all of this. And we've already heard it discussed. IBM, for example, putting numbers to it, 7,800 back office roles could be impacted by AI. Are you seeing the pipeline change when it comes to people looking at tech and wanting a job there? So we are seeing the pipeline change because um, you know young people who want to join tech are seeing these layoff numbers. You know, 200,000 people lost their job already in 2023. More happened in uh, 2022, and they're thinking maybe this job isn't as secure as I once thought it was. I don't know that that's happening yet because of AI, um, and so that's kind of an interesting question that people are talking about right now. It's just because of the economy, mm. but when these CEOs are sending out these big memos explaining why they're laying off so many workers, they're often citing AI, not as a job replacement, but saying we need to shift our business to focus more on how AI can enhance our business. And that might mean cutting some jobs and hiring more AI or machine learning engineers. Mm, We certainly heard that from Meta. We've heard it from uh, plenty of other founders at the moment. When we have seen a sea change culturally of people thinking it was you know, I get a computer, 
ability when I go to university, I get some great instruction and I've got a job made. Yeah. Ultimately, are people now trying to work out the ways in which they can work with big tech? Are they more interested in going to startups, for example? There was all this talk of silver linings that people won't be employed by big tech, but my goodness, they'll go and start their own thing. Are they? I think... And overall, people are nervous right now. Even the companies that seemed safe, Google, Facebook, um, even these big startups like Stripe, you know, these private companies that are essentially public, they've been around so long and are so big, these companies are, are slashing jobs. And not just, um, you know, often recruiters are the first to go when um, a company isn't hiring anymore, but they're cutting, you know, people who have been software engineers at these companies for 10 years. There's a, there's a fear that's happening in, in the job market in Silicon Valley. I know people who aren't leaving jobs that they don't like, which they normally would leave, because they're concerned that they won't be able to find a good one um, if they do. Hey, Ellen, beyond just the layoffs, I get the headline of the layoffs, but how is AI altering the jobs market in terms of the type of talent that startups are going out for? You're out in New York, you're usually here with me in broader Silicon Valley. You know, there is a lot of excitement right now and a lot of hiring as people pivot towards what is in vogue. I mean, if you're a software engineer with experience in artificial intelligence and machine learning, you are in high demand. And um, we even saw that show up in some stats. I talked to someone who runs um, uh, a database that collects um, compensation information. They said that senior software engineers with AI and machine learning backgrounds um, are getting paid salaries on average 12% higher than senior software engineers with, without that relevant experience. Like, I think the money is definitely going toward people who say that they can help these companies you know, pivot toward AI or use AI to enhance their business. Um, I think that's one thing that's happening. And then another thing is, look, if you play around with ChatGPT and, and you try to use it to code, I think you pretty quickly see that while it can't do the job on its own, it can pretty quickly replace a couple extra programmers that you might need to build out a certain product. I know I have a friend who's building an app on his own. Normally, he would have hired a developer. Instead, he's just using ChatGPT because it can code and it can um, correct its own code. All he has to do is kind of tell it what he wants, and he knows enough um, to be able to make it work that way. It's not hard to imagine how this could replace jobs a little bit down the line. All right, Bloomberg's Ellen Hewitt, all things startup, all things technology worker, thank you. All right, let's stick with AI and bring in Girish Matrabutam, CEO of customer service productivity startup Freshworks. They call Freshworks the Salesforce of India. And I don't know whether, Girish, you're going to say that's fair or not, but what you're doing is taking generative AI tools and integrating it into existing suite. Freddie, how does that work? Good morning, Ed and Carolyn. Thanks for having me on the show. At Freshworks, we've always believed in building software for the Fortune 5 million, not just for the Fortune 500. And we have been on the Freddy journey for over five years now because we all know how AI was changing businesses. And we are truly taking the same idea of generative AI to democratize the access for generative AI to Fortune 5 million companies and, and specifically in the areas of customer experience and employee experience. That's uh, our mission now. The question is, how does it help the customers in real terms? You know, we dangle the words generative AI in front of everything at the moment, Girish. Tell us how in practice this helps your customer base. Okay, I'll give you two uh, clear examples. Uh, If you take customer service, which is our largest business, we have all seen from the days of call center and IVR, Uh, how businesses have always wanted automation. So generative AI will bring that conversational style of customer self-service for all of us. And more importantly, we believe in a human augmented AI, which is 
uh, think of Copilot. Uh, so we are building um, an AI assistant for salespeople, support people, marketing people. So, uh, and so think of this new world where your employees can become even more productive where they don't have to do the mundane, boring, routine tasks and they can move on to doing higher uh, productivity tasks. And, and that is going to make life a lot easier for all of us. So you're thinking more of an augmented human rather than one that's replaced, Girish. What about coding yourself? Are you not having to hire as many people as you ultimately thought you would have to? Because we're just hearing from Ellen about how you can do basic coding using tools such as ChatGPT. So I think uh, developer productivity will definitely increase and that will allow us to do a lot more and do it faster. And you will still continue to hire uh, developers, but maybe the skill set of the developers that you hire may change a little bit as you were uh, discussing. There is more AI uh, uh, in demand, uh, but we believe that overall developer productivity will go up and that should help us do a lot more. And there's going to be plenty of new opportunities for us to kind of solve. What's interesting is, of course, the AI hype that has today, for example, pushed Microsoft ever higher, potentially at the highest record high for the stock ever. I'm looking at your share price, and well, it's languished, to be frank. It has picked up of late, but nowhere near the highs of previous years. And I'm, I'm interested, Girish, in whether you feel that ultimately our companies are eating the AI lunch, whether that's rightly so or not so, is it is perhaps the hype too much around certain names? Why hasn't yours been caught up in it? So, so we are more in the business productivity software. We are not uh, like in the business of hyping up AI. So our, uh, we all uh, know what's happened to tech stocks and uh, we are a young public company in the process of building credibility with the public investors and we have shown um, <clears throat> like the last uh, six, eight quarters of consistent, credible growth, and we'll continue to execute. And I think the markets will eventually uh, catch up to where the efficiencies are. Kirish, I want to ask you about India. Sam Altman was in India. He was talking about the opportunity for AI. You've expanded your operations and talent pool there. Some of what Sam Altman said also uh, invoked a response. What did you make of it? <clears throat> First of all, I think that in uh, Gen AI is a great opportunity for India. With uh, We just have uh, crossed over 5 million developers in India. I think uh, the number was 3 million a few years ago. So uh, <clears throat> this is going to be a pivotal moment. And you have to understand that from a demographic standpoint, India has a very young uh, workforce and who's hungry to learn. And there is a lot of aspiration. And... and <clears throat> I was also amazed to see that universities in India have already uh, started launching AI, ML, and generative AI courses. So, so you, I think this is going to be a phenomenal opportunity for India, and um, we are going to see a lot of startups uh, focusing on that coming from India. Well, you're a prominent VC as well as being the founder of this particular company, Girish. We thank you so much for spending some time with us, Girish Mrathabutham, the CEO of Freshworks.
Time for talking tech. TikTok parent ByteDance is drawing up plans to build an app capable of providing multiple services. The everything app model is popular in China thanks to Tencent's WeChat. ByteDance aims to offer a range of services from food delivery to travel bookings. Plus, TikTok CEO says it plans to invest billions of dollars in Southeast Asia over the next year. Three to five years, in fact. It's part of an effort to strengthen the presence of its hit video app, in the region. And speaking of TikTok, a bipartisan group of US lawmakers reintroduced legislation that restricts social media companies like TikTok from sending sensitive user data to foreign adversaries. The bill doesn't explicitly mention TikTok. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Ed Ludlow here in San Francisco. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. Let's go back to the world of AI. Yeah, the topic of the day, week, month and year, AI. So let's talk AI and data with AWS Vice President Mylan Thompson-Bukovic, who leads some of the company's largest scale data services. The way that I explain it is if you're an AWS cloud customer who is either storing or processing data, that's your responsibility. That is my remit, Ed. Thank you for having me here. You're very welcome. Why then are you so focused on generative AI? Well, I have to tell you, Ed, Our AWS customers are asking us, how do I change my data strategy with Gen AI? How do I make sure my Gen AI strategy is using my data to differentiate? Because that is what customers want. I think we've learned in in recent weeks and months that training models on the thing that you want to, to reflect your own data is key. There is an argument that Amazon or AWS, strong on AI, machine learning, behind on generative AI. What do you make of that argument? Well, I don't think that's the case, actually, Ed. I think we right now we have over 100,000 customers that are doing all different types of ML, including generative AI, uh, on AWS today. And if you look at the customers that are pivoting quickly and they're launching with Gen AI capabilities today, they're launching them on a shared data set with the data strategy and the ML tools that Amazon provides. So I'll give you one example. Snap recently launched a new feature called MyAI. And so Snapchatters all over the world can use MyAI to ask questions about what to wear to a job interview or what movie to see. And MyAI is uh, running on generative AI. Many of the models for what Snap is using is using Amazon S3 and their own data that they're training off of Amazon S3 as well as Amazon EC2 for the, um, the training itself. And they were able to move so nimbly because they had a cloud-based model. How are you having those conversations with companies that aren't yet using a cloud-based model? Are you seeing the promise of generative AI, the need to get into it, as fast-tracking some of that sales process, Manan? Absolutely. That question of what is my data strategy and how does it help me move to Gen AI is just top of mind for CTOs and CIOs everywhere. If you look at some of the customers of AWS, if you look at Cox Automotive, Cox Automotive has been transforming the auto purchase experience with Kelly Blue Book and AutoTrader, and they have been doing a, a data lake, a centralized data strategy model for many years now, and they started because of business analytics, but they found that when they centralized their data with their data strategy on Amazon S3, they were able to move that much more quickly into machine learning and computer vision. And now, when you're looking at an image of a car 
on a Cox property, that computer vision models will, model will tell you if that's a shadow in the picture or it's actually a scratch. And that is an incredible, incredibly important part of the auto purchase experience. Yeah. And so those customers need to start with the right data strategy, just like Cox Automotive did, in order to move as quickly as they can to all these new technologies and forms of machine learning. How is it those sorts of examples that get a potential customer coming to you rather than Microsoft? Because it feels like Microsoft managed to just sort of take some of the oxygen out of the room when it came to generative AI. How have you fought back against that? Well, the things that we do, Caroline, is really to just listen to our customers. And we have over 25 machine learning services today. And the latest thing that we have uh, introduced is Amazon Bedrock. So uh, again, listening to customers. For us, we know data has gravity. We know that our customers want to bring their machine learning models to the data. And I'll tell you why that's the case. If you think about what data a customer has, it's their business data, but it's a lot of their customers' data. And for data governance reasons, they do not want to take their customer data and bring it over to another provider and have that train off-site and off-host and out of their control. And so with Bedrock, when we're training or we're giving the capabilities for customers to pick any open source model or to use Titan, the Amazon model, they're training their data on a local custom copy. They're able to integrate with SageMaker today to train off data that's in their data lake. And I think that is a huge, huge differentiator for AWS because we have hundreds of thousands of data lakes running on Amazon S3 today. And customers want to start from there and not spin off all these data silos just for Gen AI. They need to use their data to differentiate and to do it safely with the data governance that their CIOs need. Mylan, first half of this year, AWS customers were cost optimizing. Has that continued? Well, I think the key word there, Ed, is optimizing. When I talk to customers, and we hear this from customers all the time, it's all about prioritization. I think that's true for every company in the world right now. And so what our customers are doing is they're prioritizing what are the most important investments to make. And for many of them, it's Gen AI and how they take advantage of it. And so they're pivoting what they're spending on the cloud with AWS to focus on that and maybe deprioritizing, which just means do later, some of the other initiatives. It kind of crystallized that for us in the context of generative AI. Because if you're an AWS cloud customer, that can mean many things. They're pulling back in some areas, but are they tuning up in generative AI? Well, when I talked about that shared data set, Ed, that is such an accelerator because when our customers tune up, as you say, on generative AI, they can do it that much faster. Let's take PagerDuty. So PagerDuty automates instant response. And just recently, they launched three new generative AI capabilities. And their ability to launch that was based on the fact that their, 
they're training their data now on a huge data set in S, Amazon S3 that's also being used for analytics and other prediction-based machine learning. So those customers that are able to pivot, they don't have to come up with a new data strategy. They just pivot and they go fast on Gen AI because they're starting from that data strategy. Caroline, if you just peel back behind generative AI, just get rid of that word for a second, there are some pretty cool things happening. People are building things, software, yeah. with yeah. new use cases. And we were just hearing about my AI from Snapchat. You were talking about Cox, Mylan. Ultimately, though, what is like the coolest thing that you've seen built that just wouldn't have been possible a year ago? Because I feel we get so caught up in the hype, but actually a lot of this stuff, as you say, is machine learning, AI that perhaps was already predictive in nature. What is ultimately actually new that you've seen that couldn't have been done previously? Well, Caroline, I have to say, I have three children, and if you asked me to pick my favorite child, I don't think I could do that. That is much the same with so many of the new innovations that are coming out everywhere. Uh, I think, you know, if I look at the, the My AI capability for Snap, I think that's, um, that's really transformative in the social media space. We have so many different examples. I think uh, Canva is another one. Canva is a graphics um, uh, uh, tool and it has over 135 million monthly active users and they are generating imagery off of text prompts. That's I think that's pretty amazing and I think it's really cool what AWS has with Code Whisper. You know, as somebody who builds software services myself, the idea that you can generate code from existing code in comments automatically, I think is just going to be transformative for how we build software in the future. That's what we want to talk about building things. AWS Vice President Mylan thompson Bukovec, thank you very much. Now coming up, Tesla offering three months of free fast charging in the US with the goal of clearing inventory of Model 3 sedans before the end of the quarter. Much more on that next. Real quick, watching shares of Software One, the company's board said Bain Capital's $3.2 billion offer to take the IT services provider private undervalues the company. The latest hurdle in the private equity firm's attempt to buy that big European tech name. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. 
Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is a North American charging standard or NACS connector, and it was invented by Tesla. And this is a CCS connector, and CCS stands for Combined Charging System, and it was used by almost everybody else. That's until big news. Oh, hey, Tesla, this is Ford and GM. Yeah, we're joining Team NACS. Ford and GM announced they'd adopt NACS in future models, and they get access to the Tesla charger network. And that essentially created a US-wide standard. Charging providers like ChargePoint, EVgo, Rulebox, and Blink followed suit, saying they'd offer technology that works with Tesla's connectors and offer CCS. Here's the history. 2011, automakers like Ford, GM, Volkswagen, and BMW say they'll collaborate on the combined charging system. Their goal, use CCS to standardize how EVs are charged in the US and Europe. Meanwhile, Tesla develops its own proprietary technology. That's been used since 2012, when the Model S went into production. Those NACS connectors are lighter, approximately half the size, and can transfer more power than CCS. The reality is Tesla's NACS network is already bigger than the CCS network in America. But there's still some concerns. Advocates for CCS say that NACS is not open source, and it has not been peer-reviewed. For now, it seems to be a case of Tesla's way or... All right, for more, let's bring in Bloomberg's Dana Hull. That's the context of the last week, Dana. The news, Tesla offering free charging. What do we know? Well, it's not free. I mean, you know, Ford and GM um, customers are going to have to pay for it. But supercharging has become a big value add for Tesla. And I think we've seen consumers now, you know, they're no longer worried about range anxiety so much as they are. If I go to a charging station, is it going to work? Because we've seen a lot of reliability studies out about broken chargers. And that's just not okay. Like, we're in this big transition to electric vehicles. Being able to know that you're going to be able to charge when you go to your destination is a big point for consumers. Meanwhile, they're still trying to sell their cars, Tesla, as well as being able to beef up their revenue streams in the forward-looking nature of being able to, you know, share its own capacity to charge. What are they doing with all the Model 3s that they're not able to shift right now? Right, so uh, they are offering free supercharging for three months to Hmm. anyone who takes a Model 3, takes delivery of a Model 3 before June 30th, which conveniently is the end of the second quarter. So you're now sort of seeing supercharger be a lever that Tesla is pulling to kind of help spur demand as they're trying to clear that inventory. So sort of what price would that, ultimately, what are you saving? I think it really depends on how much you drive. I mean, the important thing is that most people who own an electric car charge overnight at home. Mm. Supercharging is really just for those longer road trips. Kind of niche, yeah. But it's not, I mean, it used to be free when Tesla was first a company, and now, now you know, it's, it's, a, it's a cost. But it's, it's, it's free if you buy a car before the end of the month. So, Donna, the story with Tesla's kind of changed. You always nail it. And you wrote that the charger or the network is Tesla's shrewdest product. What do you mean by that? 
I just think they had the foresight very early on, going over a decade now, that charging was going to be really key to consumer adoption. And you know, the CCS standard is kind of like a standard by committee. It was very slow moving. Tesla was like, we can't wait. We're coming out with the Model S. We're going to make our own. And they have really chosen very good locations. And they have the telematics and the data from how people to char charge to know where they need to add more chargers, where people charge the longest, what the biggest stops are. I mean, the Harris Rance supercharger station has 98 stalls. That's the big station on the route between uh, the Bay Area and Los Angeles. And, you know, other, other car companies, I mean, they just are, I think, recognizing that the superchargers are better, they're faster, they work, and, like, Tesla maintains them. Whereas, like, with these other charging companies that are out there, like, it's not really clear who maintains them once they're installed and the user interface isn't as good. So, you know, what's interesting is this, is this dominance is not the case in Europe and China, but in the U.S., for sure, like, the supercharger network is seen as the best out there, which is why Ford and GM have just joined it. Dana Hall, great to have you here in New York. Thank you for coming and spending some time with us. Really appreciate it. Now, tonight's episode of The Circuit, Emily Chang sits down with OpenAI's Mira Marathi, the company's chief technology officer, and really just gets to grips with some of the potential risks, the rewards of a world with widespread artificial intelligence. There is certainly a risk that um, when we have these AI systems that are able to set their own goals, they decide that their goals are not aligned with ours and uh, they do not benefit from having us around and could lead to human extinction. That is a risk. The circuit to watch more of Emily Chang's interview with Mira Marathi, OpenAI CTO, and Reid Hoffman, actually, who is an early OpenAI investor. Watch the circuit. Emily Chang tonight, 10 p.m. in New York on Bloomberg Television, or stream it at 8 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Originals. Now, much of Silicon Valley is playing catch-up in the AI race, chasing after Microsoft, which has been investing in the hottest startup on the market, OpenAI, since 2019. Now it's preparing to cash in on that investment. It's today's Big Take, and joining us for more is one of the co-bylines on that Big Take, Dina Bass, this in Business Week. Talk to me about the leapfrogging. Google, years and years of research, but didn't want to go towards commercialization. Microsoft, this scattergun approach, multiple chains looking at AI, Clippy is in there along the way. Now everything's changed. So a lot of the difference is Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella's decision to really bet on open AI and to, to premise a lot of Microsoft's strategy to underpin a lot of its products, the entire load of products that it's been unveiling in the last six months on the open AI technology. That's a really unusual move for Microsoft. Microsoft has, you know, we spoke to a lot of people inside and outside the company. The company has really never before relied on an outside company uh, to underpin so significantly its bet on a major platform shift, such as, as AI is expected to be. So that's a that's a real difference, and it's it's made a huge difference for Microsoft because if you go back a couple of years, when there Microsoft had a lot of AI efforts going on, but they weren't amounting to to much in terms of products or in terms of a coherent strategy. The, the big take also poses questions about OpenAI, whether it's actually the hottest startup out there, or it actually in practice, if it's a subsidiary of Microsoft now. 
you know, I mean, financially, it's clearly not a subsidiary. Microsoft's put a total of $13 billion into OpenAI, according to people familiar with the deals. Because not all of those deals amounts were public, obviously. But, you know, there is, and this is a little bit of like, you know, one of the hotter, hotter parlor games in tech right now, a discussion of, you know, who is the controlling party here? You know, does Microsoft, you know, is Microsoft the more important party? Is OpenAI the more important party? And the truth is that, to a large extent, they're very codependent on each other. They're, you know, both the futures of both companies in some pretty significant ways are tied up in the, the work of the other one at this point. There's a key character in this story, Kevin Scott, Microsoft's chief technology officer. He finds his way to Microsoft through the LinkedIn acquisition. And then in 2019, he basically gets Microsoft's act together in how it goes about tackling AI. Right. So Kevin Scott, uh, very shortly after LinkedIn closes, Satya makes Kevin Scott the CTO for the whole company. And one of his missions, one of his charges was to come up with a way for Microsoft's AI strategy to be more focused, more coherent, and most importantly, more impactful. And Kevin, you know, who has a, lo a longstanding relationship, um, you know, with Sam Altman, actually, you know, winds up being the go-between of the, the negotiations between the two companies. He's also someone that spent a fair amount of time at Google. One of the things he notices when he comes in and he looks at the Microsoft AI efforts, because, you know, a lot of your listeners might think, you know, Microsoft just got into AI. Actually, Microsoft's been working on AI for more than two decades. But what, what yes. Scott saw, started looking at all the projects, and he looked at it via the request for GPUs, these key AI chips, for every pro every AI project in the company. And there were so many requests. He told us it was basically the magnitude of Microsoft's entire capital budget. And there were all these disparate projects that didn't have a business model, weren't talking to each other. And he, you know, around 2019, he and Nadal come up with this plan to really instill some discipline and make sure everything is, you know, yes. marching towards some big goals. But also they do the open AI investment that same year, which is a huge bet, again, not on Microsoft's own work, but on someone else's. Uh, Bloomberg's Dina Bass, just terrific, deep reporting for the big take in Business Week. Check it out online on the Bloomberg Terminal. Also talks a lot about how Microsoft commercialized the technology, which we didn't have time to get to. That does it, I'm afraid, for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. We are four days into a mega, mega week from Silicon Valley and in New York. You can recap what we've been talking about with the Bloomberg Technology Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, iHeart, and the Bloomberg platforms, of course. From San Francisco, this is Bloomberg Technology. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.